This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. On Saturday, June 22nd, 22 people were arrested at Bath Ironworks at the christening of a Navy destroyer that was built there. We have several of them here with us in the studio and also one person who wasn't arrested this time but was arrested back in April, the last time this affinity group was arrested at Bath Ironworks. And this is a campaign that's been going on for years. So we're going to talk about why it is that they do that, some background in history and what their goals are. But first, I want to have each of you introduce yourself so that people will associate your uh, voices with your names as we continue this discussion. So uh, who, which side of the table do we want to start at? Hi, Amy. I'm Doug Hendrick. Was that done well? Yes, yes. I'm Would Doug. you like to say a little bit more about I'm, yourself, Doug Hendrick? <laughs> I'm rather shy. Uh, I'm Doug Hendrick. I'm from Deer Isle, and I've been a great uh, admirer and appreciator of all the work that WRU has done all these years. It's given the likes of us uh, a, a platform, and uh, once again, I know we're very excited for uh, this opportunity. Well, thanks so much. And you're involved with Veterans for Peace? I am, yeah. I'm a longtime member of Veterans for Peace. I found it. I f- didn't found it, but I became aware of it back in about 1990. It was founded in our state in 1985. We're very proud of that. It's now we've got 140 chapters, a chapter in every state in the country and in a number of other countries as well. Pretty exciting. Very important uh, uh, piece of the, of the peace movement. Okay. Right. Dad's been a regular here, so welcome back. Connie. Hi, Amy. I'm Connie Jenkins, and I'm from East Blue Hill, Maine, um, a member of Pox Christi, Maine, and Peninsula Peace and Justice. And I will just echo um, Dud's appreciation for you giving us this opportunity. Well, thank you all for coming in. <laughs> thank you, Amy. Um, I'm Russell Ray from Hancock, and um, I'm an associate member of Veterans for Peace and volunteer with uh, Citizens Opposing Active Sonar Threats, or COAST. Hi, Amy Meredith Breskin. I'm from Swanville, Belfast area, and I'm with Waldo County Peace and Justice and with um, the Conversion Campaign, uh, strong supporter of Veterans for Peace for a long time, um, and appreciate very much the opportunity ERU does give us because we do not get it in the mainstream media unless we write letters to the editor, which we do, but it's not exactly the same. So we re- really appreciate the focus here. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Amy. I'm Rob Shatterly. I'm involved with all these people and in their groups and my group, and I'm an artist activist, the painter of the Americans Who Tell the Truth series, and um, also very grateful to ERU for what it's done for my project and all these issues. And many of you have been here before, so welcome back to all of you and welcome if you've not been here before. And we've discussed this over the years. We've talked about Bath Ironworks in this campaign. We've reported on it. Carolyn Co. did a piece as recently as April on the last campaign. But there may be people listening this morning who haven't heard the background of what this is about, how many years it's been going on, what the original goals were, how it got started. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that. How did this and when did this campaign get started? And uh, if you want to build on that also, how have the goals changed over the years? What was the original goal? What is it? What are they now? That's a lot. So whoever wants to jump in and take whatever piece of that you want, we can just have everybody weigh in. I'm not sure that uh, any of us can tell you exactly what year the uh, pushback at Bath Ironworks may have begun. I'm sure one of us will weigh in if that's the case. But we do know that in large part it's credited to the 
the uh, Berrigan brothers, the uh, Catholic priest Daniel and Philip Berrigan, uh, who were both arrested at various times back in, I believe, the 90s and maybe even preceding that back in the 80s in objection to the warships being built, uh, the exclusive product basically at, at Bath Ironworks. And uh, yes, it has evolved considerably over the years, but there have been real strong adherents and leaders uh, in our experience. When I speak of our, the five of us here, I think, have been involved for at least a decade, maybe more than that, in, in some of the uh, demonstrations in response to a christening or a launching at Bath Ironworks. But <clears throat> Bruce Gagnon, who many of our listeners will know, who's the founder of or the, uh, the organizer behind Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, is one of the primary movers and shakers in our in our movement, as, as are George and Maureen Austinson. They've been involved for a long, long while down there. Uh, we're going to be very anxious to tell you how the focus has changed, or at least uh, as of late, in response to, the, to our recognition that there's a uh, very close connection between the global crisis, the global climate crisis, and uh, militarism. I would say Marjorie, uh, I would say Maureen and George. I just spoke with Maureen and, and they started standing on a very regular basis a decade ago, but have been there since the 90s with the Berrigans. Um, and I, probably most of us have been spending some time there over the years for at least a decade. I have at least. And um, it's always been a stand for turning from building more military weapons uh, to thinking about building for peace. Uh, we're now shifting as we're talking about and really understanding that the climate crisis is central to uh, all insecurity in the world for all humans. So um, that shift is happening with this uh, campaign. But the idea of being there, talking about building for peace, has been going on for as as that said, over a decade. Yeah, I would just add most recently, and it, it goes to it speaks to why it is that our campaign is so critical now. We have a president who just three days ago, I think, at the G20 conference, stated baldly that he's not going to do anything about the climate crisis because it will affect corporate profits. And to be able to just say that and to have it accepted really says something pretty astonishing about where we are in our country now. Um, I think it's, it's really important. I'm so glad that we started out with talking about um, what we are doing as part of being a long-term campaign that has been going on since the 80s and the 90s. We are really following in a tradition. Um, so this is nothing new, and uh, we aren't going away. Uh, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. On the way up here today, I was thinking about uh, how it has evolved that we are, are launching, have launched this climate crisis demands change or de demands conversion. Uh, and it relates to WRU in my mind, it occurred to me. Um, it really sprang from a group of us who are from this area. So WRU has every, uh, everything to do with our activism. We know that WRU has given us a platform over the years. And I think that has spawned a population of engaged citizens to a degree. Uh, I know there are close connections between all of us who are involved in this campaign and ERU and, of course, universal appreciation. But um, we had a meeting back in uh, probably last, late last summer, I guess, following our, in, in acknowledgement that there was another launching soon to come up. At that point in time, we didn't know exactly when that was. And 
returning from that trip uh, and a conference at Bruce Gagnon's home down in Bath, um, we decided that there was going to be a, a broad, uh, a widespread effort to really make a presence, have a presence that whenever that next launching should happen. On the way home, the several of us who had been there decided we needed to, to begin an affinity group in this area because we knew that there were <clears throat> at least 15 or so of us who were very involved in this in this effort at Bath and would want to be involved at the next action. And so we did, and it was only in those conversations that followed that we, I think, in my, in my uh, mem rem rem uh, memory, it was only then that we began to see this close connection, this striking connection between militarism and the climate change. Uh, that in fact, as we looked at it closer and closer, the military and working is the primary culprit. I keep referring to it as the elephant in the room. Affinity group being a group of people that work together, and anybody want to expand on that uh, definition? I know different groups have slightly different takes on that. What does that mean to you all? Are, and everybody here now is part of this affinity group? Yes. Um, yes. So what, is it, what does that mean for listeners who aren't familiar with the term? Well, we need to, this is Rob, and uh, what we need to be doing when we prepare for any action is get to know each other well, get to know what we can, that we're all thinking the same thoughts and planning the same action and that we can count on each other uh, to behave in a certain way. Um, and that we, you know, when we come up against, you know, and when we go to Bath Ironworks and then do whatever we do to, uh, you know, impede you know, the uh, launching of a ship, uh, which is not actually blocking the ship at all, it's just blocking the access for guests to get into the, the shipyard, that we know each other well enough that under any kind of stress we can count on each other to uh, behave well together and trust each other, which is a big part of, of any action like this is how well we know each other and how well we can okay. count on each other. I wanted to just enlarge on something, you know, that uh, has been alluded to, but hasn't really been stated, and I think everybody needs to, to know that, um, you know, when we talk about the evolution of the, the goals of this group, you know, going from really uh, being opposed to militarism in general and specifically Bath Ironworks, and then making it clear that we're talking about climate now and the connection to militarism, that the U.S. military has the largest single, as we phrase it, blueprint you know, of any entity in the whole world in terms of CO2 emissions. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're concerned about in particular is that um, whatever political will there is to deal with this uh, issue, um, as there is none at the top now, but hopefully there will be a lot more, um, is that unless it deals with the military issue and the military responsibility for, for climate change, it may not be successful. And at this point, you know, even to talk negatively about the military in this country is taboo. Mm -hmm. There are very few people who are willing to do that in, in political leadership positions. And so that's one of the main focuses of our organizing is to, you know, enlarge that discussion, make it possible. You know, that's why we write letters and, and do these demonstrations is to get a platform where we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the original goals were, or I don't know about goals, but the original uh, impetus to go and protest was about the fact that these are destroyers, that they are, are warships, mm -hmm. and it was an anti-war kind of movement, primarily yes. the Berrigan Brothers, and 
that hasn't gone away. That's still the kind of ships that they're building. They're the one that you were arrested uh, protesting at most recently. It was a destroyer, April as well, right? Yes. Uh, christen, uh, christening both times of the ships, not launching. So uh, that aspect of it hasn't gone away. Somewhere along the line, I remember there were there was talk about trying to get a uh, conversion to making uh, solar panels or some kind of a green conversion there. Is that still part of the goal and discussed or? Well, actually, before General Dynamics took over Bath Ironworks, there was discussion uh, at Bath Ironworks with the union about building uh, wind turbines. Uh, probably there were clear plans on how to do that conversion. General Dynamics, however, is one of the largest armament dealers in the world, um, and they own Bath Ironworks. So we're also very clear in our affinity group that we're not, uh, we're supportive of good jobs, well-paid jobs, skilled workers at Bath Ironworks. Totally supportive of that. But we're pretty convinced that probably the folks who are doing the building aren't any happier than we are that the day after the Zumalt uh, LBJ was christened in um, April, it was announced that there were so many difficulties with it that it was going to just be used for parts. <laughs> this is a seven billion no, dollar question. How much does that cost? Seven yes. billion dollars. There are. Th billion. It's the third Zumalt. Okay, so the UN. I just have to put this in. Uh, the UN just announced that it would co cost about thirty billion dollars a year to end world hunger. Mm. Uh, which might have a lot to do with folks having to walk 2,000 miles and try to get into other borders um, besides the effects of climate change. But $21 billion for the Zumalts that have no spot and there mm. is no need and, as Russell talks about, is so destructive, not just at the risk of nuclear war, but also totally destructive, even just driving around uh, to, the, to marine life and to the planet. The, uh, the ship that was just christened this past week, or a week ago Saturday, that uh, you were protesting at was named for the late Senator Daniel Inouye. His wife told an AP reporter that he believed before he passed that, quote, a strong military is necessary to ensure peace. Uh, they came with lays. They were trying to bring Hawaii to Maine. There was sort of a celebratory kind of uh, atmosphere there. And uh, the belief that if we just had enough strong ships, we'd be safe. Well, I mean, I mean the, the face of that, I'm sure every one of us would like to answer that. But I mean, Go for it. I mean, on the face of it, it's just so absurd. Yes. I mean, we've had for, you know, since World War II, the strongest, biggest, most powerful, and most redundant military in the world, and we've never been at peace. Never. Mm. We have been in constantly at war since the Second World War. Constantly. We are the most, you know, warlike nation in the world, mm -hmm. actually in our whole history. And so... On the one, that's the kind of taboo that you are up against all the time. That says, you know, just because you know, in order to have peace and security, we need this huge military. In fact, it does just the opposite. It makes it more insecure, constantly. And um, you know, one of the things that, uh, just in terms of cost, which is so important, is, you know, on these wars in the Middle East since 2001, uh, 
nearly $6 trillion has been spent. $6 trillion for what? For what? what? What have we gained in terms of peace or security? Nothing. In fact, the whole world could have been rewired in terms of clean energy for $6 trillion, mm -hmm. maybe even twice over. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of just uh, wastefulness, and, and uh, it's, it's really criminal, the amount of money that gets spent. And of course, we, we think that, well, the money gets blown up and it's gone. It's not. It's in the pockets of General Dynamics right. and Lockheed Martin and Halliburton. You know, that's where the money goes. And it's a vast taking of the resources of the people of this country to create a military that doesn't need to be anything like it is. And it does. I mean, when we, when we talk about a destroyer being built, just the building of it is a destruction. I mean, that's what it. How long happened. do they take to build? Mm. A long time. Two years. We have like another one in there in the process of being built while this one's being christened and like have, assembly line. They usually have several going at once. They do. Yeah. You know, to go back to the idea of, of economic conversion, um, a lot of times we may hear from people who oppose the idea that just the notion of it is very, that we're being extremely idealistic, when in reality there is a long history in this country of people trying to work for con conversion of the economy from a war economy to a peace economy. And in preparing for our time together today, I came across an article that was written by another member of our affinity group, uh, Mary Beth Sullivan, that was published back in 2011. Uh, and for listeners who might be interested, it was published in uh, thehumanist.com. You can go online and take a look at it. And it's, it's titled, Moving from a War Economy to a Peace Economy. And it's a terrific article because it outlines the history of attempts at economic conversion in this country and the enormous power of those who oppose the move. The really important thing, and the good news about this article, too, is that there's a history in this country that we can learn from and build on of a coalition uh, among the peace movement, the unions, students, and even members of Congress who have been, who started working on, you know, this attempt at conversion from war economy to peace economy decades ago. So what we are doing is nothing new and it's not idealistic. But what happens when, when this call for conversion goes out is that the real um, ugliness of the power of the greed in this system comes out. I think we're all well aware that uh, General Eisenhower had much to say about this um, as he was leaving office. Uh, the, he acknowledged that the military-industrial complex was at the root of this problem. And a, a truth that I learned not long after becoming aware of that quotation of his is that there is a major defense contractor in every single congressional district in the country. So it gives us an idea of why these politicians have a very difficult time voting against what they think may take jobs away from or not, not bring the jobs to their congressional district. I covered a protest, I think back in the 90s, at Bath Iron Works. At that time, the uh, workers who were leaving their shift were not friendly at all to the protesters. You know, it was the typical, take a bath, cut your hair, get a job stuff that you hear at every protest. And But since then, I think that there have been some inroads made with the workers, is what I understand. Can you talk about that? I think we can attribute uh, what 
seemed not to be particularly hostile, in fact, not supportive uh, and an affinity with uh, one another between the workforce and the and the peace movement down there. And I think you can attribute much of that to, to Bruce Gagnon mm, yeah. and his leadership. Uh, he's worked hard to convey a sane civil message. He's worked hard to ensure that all of us who are participating in this are adhering to these principles that Rob, uh, Rob alluded to when he was speaking about affinity groups. Where, we're peace-loving, and we don't intend to. Um, um, we're, we're building. We're attempting to build bridges rather than the opposite. Really, and we're just in, in attempting to educate as opposed to uh, acting in a destructive manner. Well, we're actually. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. One thing that um, Bruce has emphasized repeatedly is that were a conversion to happen, BIW would actually be able to offer a lot more well-paying jobs to to its workers. Mm. That's, um, and that's based and on the, research. And that is based on several studies showing mm -hmm. that, that uh, uh, jobs uh, that are for things such as green energy, alternative energy systems, create, what was it, twice as well, many? I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's substantially more. Yeah, I think this is the one you're referring to. Well, there's several, yeah. One was yeah. carried out by the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. I think the major and one Brown. now is at, at Brown University, yeah. where they have a project oh, yes. called The Cost of War, where you can go and read yes. about the cost of, of all these things, with the, the military-industrial complex, and how it could be converted uh, and provide more jobs, more security. So, we, you know, it's, it's worth saying again and again that we're not opposed to bad ironworks. We're not trying to put, you know, uh, shipbuilders out of business. We're actually trying to do uh, good by them, you know, and make their lives better not worse. Let me, yeah. I'll ask you how you're going to do that, but let me just pause for a moment and remind listeners that you are listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. That was Rob Shetterly just heard from. Also in the room with us, we have other members of the affinity, parts of the affinity group. There's 15 of you in all, right? Mm -hmm. We have five of them here today joining us to talk about the Bath Ironworks protests and the uh, most recent arrest that happened on June 22nd. Meredith Bruskin is here with us, Russell Ray, Connie Jenkins, and uh, Dud Hendrick. And uh, we're just having a general discussion of why they are doing what they're doing, how the goals, what the goals are, how they've evolved over the years. So I, I sort of derailed your uh, thought there a little bit, but if you want to pick back up with that, and how would this work if there was a conversion to peacetime kind of uh, jobs and manufacturing at Bath Ironworks and then, of course, anybody, anywhere, if you're correct about this playing a role in climate change, there are other benefits to everyone, including the workers, to addressing the issues and concerns that you have. Maybe not directly in terms of like their next job or what they earn, but you look like you don't understand what I'm saying. No, no, no. Because I I <laughs> <laughs> that was a really long, complicated <laughs> question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was probably looking like I was hoping he somebody else would have. <laughs> oh, no, we're waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, what, what these studies show is, is that, you know, if a place like Bath Ironworks were to convert, the jobs would be better jobs. And, but what you're implying there is exactly right. They would be doing a great service for the world. Uh, you know, by producing solar panels, high-speed rail. I mean, we've suggested things like, you know, we, we all sitting here and most people listening know about the incredible plastics problems in the ocean. You know, why don't they turn their engineers to producing some kind of mm -hmm. vacuum ships that would sail around the world and collect this stuff? I mean, what, a, what, a, what better service could anyone do? 
um, there, there are amazing things that could be done there to uh, that would produce a lot of jobs and would you know help us get you know answer the urgency of the moment we're in. This week, actually, a ship out of Hawaii has taken 40 tons of plastic from that swirling uh, hole, and they're recycling that um, in Hawaii and using it for other purpose. And I can't remember the name of the group, but I just read it today. It was very exciting. And they are very skilled shipbuilders. They would feel good about that. Their kids would feel good about that. Their grandkids would feel good about that. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say that I think that the experience we've been having, not with that little bit of shift with the workers, not all the workers indeed, we still get told to get a job, but um, <laughs> but uh, the shift is broader than that. So in April when um, I was arrested with the group, um, uh, I was talking with the sheriff, and uh, as we ended up getting out with the sheriff's deputies, you know, as we were all being moved around, um, we're fortunate, we're white, it's Maine. People were friendly and very civil to us, we appreciate that. But we always talk with folks about what we're really doing. And as we got out of the van, he said to me, you know, I'm with you, I'm a grandfather too. Now, I wasn't arrested this time because I was committed wow. to taking care of my grandchildren. So. Um, uh, that's really the point. That's really the point. And the kids, the kids do get it more. And uh, we hope that um, the families at BIW will be affected uh, by the conversion campaign into understanding that, that we are standing for the next generations. A couple of anecdotes uh, relevant to this phenomenon that we're talking about, this support that we may or may not be getting from the community in Bath. Uh, a couple of times back when I was arrested down there, I remember hearing, I was not actually uh, the one addressed, but I remember hearing that one of the members of the, of the police force down there had said and had acknowledged that we are the conscience of the community. So that was a, quite a, a vote of affirmation. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of us here were at a meeting in preparation for this last uh, action last week down at Bath, at which ba uh, Bruce... Uh, reported on a survey that had been taken within the yard of the machinist union, the largest union at Bath. And that survey indicated that it was just about a 50-50 vote indicating as to what would be preferable. Would it be continue making warships or just begin making things that would actually stem the global climate crisis? Uh, so that's rather telling as well. Mm -hmm. gives us an indication that in fact uh, we may be um, seeing some enlightened folks working down there. The legislature here in Maine passed some climate change related bills, one of which was to create a like a council or a group of people to be studying climate change in the state. And that, along with the some elements of the Maine Green New Deal bill, would be looking at trying to have an apprenticeship program for training more people to work in green jobs in the state of Maine. So you've got sort of a tangible step towards what you're hoping could possibly happen in Bath. But even if you could get the workers on board with that, if you got them all convinced that, yeah, this is the way to go, these are the skills to have for the future, this is something that's transferable to almost anywhere because these kinds of jobs are popping up everywhere, not just in the country but around the world. So if I knew how to do that, I could do it anywhere. But even if you got them involved, do they have any kind of clout to change things within BIW, with General Dynamics owning it, what kind of pressure can they exert? What kind of influence can they have? 
Well, I, I think, think the, I think the politicians can um, apply some subtle pressure. One I, way I, well, I meant more the workers, but yeah, the mm -hmm. local politicians too. That's good to. Uh, I was add. thinking of them as well as our yeah. our national politicians, our congressmen and our senators, in that they've been so generous with this funding through tax taxes. Uh, you know, they came before our state congress last year to get sixty thousand dollars. Million. 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 Sixty million. Sixty million. Sixty million, of course. I usually get confused before there are millions and there are billions. All those heroes. Our work did enable um, the Congress, the state Congress, or state representatives to move that back to $30,000. So we're making some impact. 45 million. Yeah. It's a lot of money. I mean, it's really, you're talking about amounts of money that we don't deal with on a day to day basis. So when you get between like 45 million and 45 billion, it's like, really, all of it's just something that. Yeah. Most of us will never that's see. A, a, it's a scale that we don't deal on. And we got to remember that we're talking about a corporation that is extremely wealthy already, right. and mm -hmm. who paid their what year was it? Two thousand seventeen, I think it was. Paid their CEO twenty one million dollars as compensation. I mean, this is a very wealthy corporation. Maine is not a, a wealthy state, mm -hmm. and I don't think we can afford to be giving them big tax cuts. And that's and it, was, it was Bruce Gagnon again mm -hmm. who did a hunger strike right. during that yes. time, really helped the mm -hmm. reduction of that tax break, uh, which you know I think people, I think reached a, a many 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 people his uh, his stand there. Well, the point that yeah. you're bringing up and that we're all talking to uh, uh, about. Um, about how it is, you know, do, would the workers have any power? I mean, you're raising the really important point of why this needs to be a grassroots movement. Um, that's the only way in which change is ever going to happen. I have no hope that people who are part of the power structure are one day going to, to wake up and say, oh my, what I've been doing is wrong. Um, and I, don't, I don't think any of us think that. However, I, I, you know, there, I think that there is hope that as we and people around the country continue the campaigns, um, so many of which it's, it's quite amazing, uh, and, and that are being led by young people, that more and more people are, are seeing really what's going on and what's behind it and are saying, no, we don't want to live this way. This is not... Um, this is not the country we want. We want a future for our children. And I think that the workers at Bath feel the same way as well. I mean, if the workers at Bath Ironworks just decided one day, you know what, we aren't making this stuff anymore, there's not too much General Dynamics could do about it. And if the stockholders at General Dynamics decided, you know, we don't want to have our money coming out of destroyers anymore, that would have an effect too. All of these things are going to take a good bit of time, but I think that there's hope that that can happen. Yeah, let me say something about that. I mean, um, I mean, Connie's absolutely right that that um, workers in situations like this, even though they're just the workers, uh, have enormous power. I mean, that's what the union movements have been about. I mean, if you look back at say um, the New Deal, you know, the New Deal wasn't because didn't get passed because FDR and Francis Perkett and those folks all looked at the conditions in this country and what was going on in the Depression and thought, wow, we really need you know, Social Security, we need an eight-hour day, we need workplace protections. There were enormous strikes going on all over this country that were shutting the country down. The workers did that. They drove the policies. Our history books don't credit that, but that's 
what happened. Bath Iron Works workers could have an enormous say in uh, how that shipyard is restructured and converted if they chose to do that. And that's part of the reason we do this stuff, is to educate them and the stockholders and other people to change the climate of conversation around what's possible there. Russell, were you getting ready to jump in and say something there, too? If I was, I, I okay. don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the uh, congressional delegation? And Susan Collins has been very supportive of Bath Ironworks. Where did the rest of them stand? Mm -hmm. All of them are supportive, and supportive of BIW as what it's producing now. They, they all routinely go to uh, the christenings and help in essentially with a celebration of these warships. They're, that's what they're doing, is celebrating these warships. And they all talk about the need for jobs at BIW and how they have to protect those jobs, et cetera. So they're all, in my opinion, they're all equally <laughs> complicit in, the, in, in what's going on there. But when, this is part of that bigger picture why we need this worldwide movement, actually, and um, the, a grassroots uh, movement. Because Maine is just a microcosm. It's happening in every state. There's nowhere where uh, the senators and representatives aren't coming home with the bacon. The bacon is military almost mm -hmm. everywhere. It's also prisons. It's, that's mm -hmm. the money. They're not just coming to celebrate the christening. They're coming to say, we brought this pocket of money to you. And um, so that has to shift. And they, I would think that Chelly Pingree is thinking more about, um, I tried to have some conversation with her and uh, she's really stepping up around the climate crisis. So I believe, I want to believe, but I do believe that people who are thinking about the climate crisis have to be thinking there are other reasons to bring that money home. There are other things that can be built. And uh, so it's sort of everything working at once, but it isn't just happening here in Maine. It's, it's, it's um, nationwide. So say more about how the climate crisis, how this all plays into climate crisis. Well, we may be sadly mistaken, but I, I do believe that we are at the tipping point. I believe that there is time for, and we're on the verge of the paradigm shift that we're all hoping for. We can see it in what's happening in Europe. When we listen to, I think many of the listeners will know of Greta Thunberg, the 16, now 17-year-old Swedish girl, who is just phenomenal and is speaking truth to power, as is this young lady who spoke at our press conference from the state of Maine, that is uh, Anna Siegel. She's from the Portland area, and she was very effective in, in uh, citing the connection between militarism and, and the uh, climate change. Uh, you know, this ship that we just sent out there will join what already is the th larger than the next largest 13 fleets in the world. So it's, it's just, you just can no longer make the point that we need a stronger military than we already have. It just doesn't hold up at all when people begin to look at it. And as they realize that our war and our militarism are, they are the major culprit here in this climate change. Uh, How is that, though? I mean, Rob, you mentioned that uh, the military in general has this big boot print and climate change. With Bath Ironworks, what specifically are they doing that's 
that's well, impacting climate change. Yeah, they are building the ships that are joining this enormous fleet. <laughs> and I, I learned something about a ship that I was stationed on years ago when I was at, at the Naval Academy. It was quite a few years ago, I guess I'd have to admit. But this ship consumes 2 million gallons of fuel just crossing the Atlantic Ocean. That's one ship among all those hundreds that are vastly more than any fleet in the, in the rest of the world. Um, so each piece of it, the, the consumption of fuel, not just the carbon footprint, but the consumption of the fuel by the U.S. military is the greatest entity on Earth as well. What about the materials consumer. that are used to build these things? Well, exactly. I mean, everything, every part of it, the, um, the construction, the materials, the transportation, and then the, you know, as they all have a, a limited lifespan, the replacement of them. I think that there's something that's really important to understand here is, um, you know, we talk about the military-industrial complex, but I think what that's come to mean uh, is something deeper and more profound. I mean, we, a hundred years ago, the great activist Emma Goldman said that the greatest bulwark of capitalism is militarism, and, and she was suggesting, as we all know from our history, just, you know, a very straight, straight ahead and look at our history, is we used the military all over the world to uh, subdue countries, take to take away their resources, to build our markets. You know, whenever we wanted something from the rest of the world, we used our military to get it. And so the military... You mean we liberate people? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. We, we usually liberated them from their own resources. Yeah. Um, but but the, the thing that... Uh, and the assumption is there that the military was being used to enhance the profits of the corporate world. You know, maybe it was United Fruit in Guatemala, you know, something like that. That's what was happening, but it was happening everywhere, or oil in, in Iran. What we see now is the inverse, that capitalism has become militarism, that they're using, that that, that is now the, the biggest product. And so and those all those enormous profits are coming from the production of weapons and ships and, and <laughs> climate change. And so what we're trying to do is make that clear here, that actually the, these weapons aren't being built to make us safer. They're being built to enhance the profits of all these you know, weapons makers. That's the main, you know, one of the main products, if the main product mm -hmm. of capitalism now is war, is death, mm -hmm. you see? And that's why there's such enormous resistance to even talking about it because, you know, obviously if you make all these things, there are a lot of people, you know, making a lot of money. There's a lot of people, there are a lot of jobs there. And most of those people who have those jobs don't even want to Makes the stockholders very happy. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just interrupt again uh, to mention that you're listening to Main Currents on WERU. I'm Amy Brown. My guest in the studio today, again, uh, as we're taking the break, you just heard from Rob Shetterly. Before that, Dud Hendrick. We also have Meredith Breskin, Connie Jenkins, and Russell Ray here with us. They're all part of a group that uh, on Saturday, June 22nd, was arrested doing civil disobedience at Bath Ironworks in protest and have been in the past as well. Why civil disobedience? Why, why uh, is this the tactic that has been used repeatedly at Bath Ironworks. Well, we should make clear that it's not the only tactic, and it's not been the first tactic that we've resorted to. We, like many citizens, have written letters. Mm -hmm. We've gone to congressional representatives' offices. We've marched. We've been uh, peaceably protesting. It's just sort of having to ratchet up uh, 
our our actions so that we might get some attention. It's not uh, it's not uh, unappealing at all to us to be to be taken to jail if we have an opportunity to get a platform. We're we're willing to take it that far, and we're rather pleased when we're taken to trial as well to give us the opportunity to we think educate others about you know, just what we're all facing and why we are doing what we're doing. And I think it's we're smart. talking a little bit more about civil resistance than <laughs> civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. and I think What's the, the difference? Uh, uh, resistance is, is proactive. We're being, um, we're, we're taking a step that seems necessary to be heard, as, as Dad said. I mean, uh, it is, it does give us more opportunity to get uh, information out. We, we started by thanking ERU because WERU does put our point of view out. And yet the Associated but Press article about the christening that was in the Bangor Daily News didn't mention the arrests at all. They didn't mention the protests at all. Right. It was a separate article entitled, entirely done by a local reporter that mentioned that. So it still tends to... And I, I think that this has always been the case. There's a lot of the uh, more mainstream media that's just always going to try to ignore you anyway. But they're unable to be, because of online media a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I think, didn't you just get the information from Hastings, England? Didn't yes, you get? Right, yes. Right. So did Ben reported on that? that far. Yeah, yeah. There was a group there in a community that Regeneral Dynamics has a plant that wanted to offer. Their, their solidarity with us oh. here and uh, encourage us to, you know, work with them. I mean, I, I a couple of points. I mean, one is that, you know, when people, whether we call it civil disobedience, which we might, or civil resistance, as we also can, um, when you look at the fabric of our history, almost every great movement that's been successful in uh, enlarging the rights or privileges or... Uh, you know, making a better life for, for the common good in this country has depended on people willing to commit civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. I mean, Rosa Parks was committing civil disobedience, you know. She couldn't vote at that point to, you know, end segregation on the buses. The women's movement, the labor movement, the environmental movement, you know, all these movements depend on people willing to break the law to make it clear to the rest of the society what needs to change. And that's what we're attempting to do. Mm -hmm. And the You're, reason, oh, this is Connie. Good. Um, the reason that we um, recently started using the, the term civil resistance rather than civil disobedience um, is because we um, all became aware of a book by um, a professor of law at University of Illinois, Francis Boyle, who for the last 30 years has really dedicated his life to um, uh, helping people who are struggling against war and militarism. Uh, and most recently, preemptive wars. And he has a wonderful um, um, contrast between those two terms, which was really eye-opening for me. Um, he said that in classic civil disobedience cases, uh, what people are doing is attempting to, they are deliberately violating domestic laws in an attempt to get those laws changed. Um, in contrast with what we are doing and why we're starting to call it civil resistance, people who take part in those kinds of actions, like we're doing at BIW, are, are acting to uphold uh, the rule of law or, institution, or um, not institutional law, uh, international law, um, human rights, the U.S. Constitution, 
uh, and the goal is to prevent uh, the ongoing commission of crimes by officials and the administration. And he has a great line when he was talking about um, the illegal war in Iraq. Um, he said, um, today's civil resistors are the sheriffs. The Bush administration officials are the outlaws. And really, that's equally um, true now. Yeah, the point I was going to make as well, we're, fond, we're admirers of Francis Boyle's work, yeah. and that's where that differentiation has sprung from. So what do you actually do? You uh, This uh, most recent christening, there were more, there's more than one group kind of in different places doing different things. For people who've never participated in one of these, what does that look like? You split up and you decide to each take a location and then, what, link arms or lay down, do a die-in, or how, how do you do do what you do at BIW to slow things down or get attention? Well, we've, we've, we've tried different things. Um, the Aegis Nine were arrested for tre trespassing, supposedly, on BIW property, and criminal trespass was the charge. And what were they actually doing? Well, it was a public event, which the Justice Billings, who was the judge in our trial, um, pointed out it was a public event open to the public and we were just standing there on their property in front of the gate we were not blocking the gate and we were holding our signs for people to read and he basically um, I forget technically what it was called but he basically found that we hadn't violated the law and that this uh, Bath police had been improperly outsourced to BIW and he he acquitted us. This is for what the, for the in e April. No, this was a, this was a year or so oh, ago. Oh, okay. Didn't something similar happen with the arrests in April? They decided not to. No, this, no, this the, time we were no. actually blocking the guests from getting into the the yard in June, but also in, in April. April. Okay. In, in both times, yeah. we did it at primarily at one gate in uh, in uh, April. This time we were at. Three gates. Three, yeah. yeah, three, three different, different places. Three different places. Um, two gates and one street crossing. But basically we're, we're, what we're looking for is, um, you know, the buses that were carrying the guests and then standing in front of them and stopping them and then also getting behind them so they couldn't back up and get away from us. Which is similar to what's happened at the uh, conventions, at the Democratic National Conventions over the years, of trying to slow down the process to, of people getting to the places, which gets a lot more attention. It also... Um, tends to get the police moving a lot faster than if you're not in the way. So how did, how did that play out? Uh, very quickly. <laughs> like I said. <laughs> they were standing nearby watching us, basically, each time, and, and very quickly moved to uh, put us in handcuffs and move us out of the way. But it's part of the tactic to, to just get in court and be able to argue, you know, that you're fighting for the greater good kind of situation and be able to have more of a platform from there to argue about why you did what you did? Uh -huh. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, um, the last two times, the charge we were arrested for was unreasonably obstructing a public way. And we believe that what we did was incredibly reasonable and it's unreasonable to do nothing to allow things to continue as they are. So we feel all you know that we can argue, make that case in in court, 
that what we did was reasonable, and not only reasonable, it was our duty. I mean, it's we have to change things if we're going to survive in the long term. Well, you know, this is airing on July 4th. We're here a couple of days ahead of time recording this, but this will be airing on the morning of July 4th. People are going to be bombarded, pardon the pun, with uh, <laughs> images about uh, patriotism. How do you all respond to the term patriotism? Is it a is it a word that you've just dismissed? Does it have negative connotations only? Is it something that you think you're taking back with your actions? I have a very visceral reaction to it, this frankly, when I uh, see the way patriotism is conducted or what is said in defense of patriotism. It seems to me that it's uh, without consideration or thought given to what our country has been doing around the planet ever since uh, at least since the war that I was involved in, I volunteered to go to Vietnam thinking that I was doing a good and honorable thing. And after seeing the way we conducted ourselves there and seeing what has justified in our leaders' opinions uh, over these ensuing decades, um, I'm of a mind that it does not serve uh, the good of mankind, it does not serve our country, and it certainly doesn't serve the victims, the, the uh, absolute direct victims of our war making. So I just see a lot of this blind patriotism and being being in service of this notion that we are defending our rights, our freedoms, and I just find that absolutely on, on the face of it, absolutely absurd. And I feel so honored to be part of standing with Veterans for Peace and with um, with all of the people who've been standing and working for peace for decades and decades. But I think that. Um, uh, I think that the Veterans for Peace are, I don't think you can get more patriotic than trying to change um, the policy of a nation that sort of tricked you <laughs> into thinking you were doing the right thing um, for the profit of corporations, because even back then, um, that was central. Uh, then spending a, a lifetime, really, working for peace, that that's that is truly patriotic. Yeah, I, I think that if we really Perhaps want, generally. if we really want peace, um, and we want to be good citizens, we really need to identify as citizens of the world. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we identify as, and if our patriotism is considered that way, um, it's that patriotism as a world citizen that will enable us to survive, and not just ourselves, but other species of the world. I mean, that has. We're not really talking about that here. Uh, but that is uh, a fundamental concern, you know, that it's not just about, this isn't just about us. This is about all species of the planet, uh, which are, you know, in a nosedive right now. We, we, we are doing this not just for our own grandchildren, but for uh, every other thing that lives. Mm -hmm. Connie, Russell, either of you want to weigh in on the notion of patriotism? We have just about five minutes left, so we're wrapping up soon. Well, I, I think all the the portraits that Rob paints and the Americans are who tell the truth. Of the Americans who tell mm -hmm. the truth. They're, they those people are patriots, mm -hmm. and and there's so many around you know the country and the world who are really working for the good of all of us. They're they're patriots, in my feeling. And speaking about other species, I just want to point out that these destroyers, which is what exactly what they are, they are destroyers. Another way that they're destroying that I've personally been involved in is with the sonar. And we've talked about that. We don't have mm -hmm. to talk about it now. But it, 
the impact um, on the marine mammals. Marine, not just and mammals, life, fish, life, yeah. birds, turtles. Um, so anyways, I don't want to change the subject, but these are destroyers, and the patriots are, in my feeling, is the people who are working for all life, to further life. I agree with everything that's been said. I certainly don't consider myself to be a patriot in any kind of traditional sense. I am, you know, aware of and grateful uh, for the opportunities that I have had because of the kind of genetic accident of being born in this country. And at the same time, you know, I grieve for this country because we have truly lost our way, and I think we probably lost our way uh, a long time ago. One of the, the notions that so often is uh, combined with patriotism is this idea of American exceptionalism, mm -hmm. that somehow we are special and that we can do things um, that, no, that we would not uh, that no one else in the world would be allowed to do, and we certainly wouldn't put up with simply because we were Americans. We we are Americans. We have over, and Dud could certainly speak to this better than I can, but we have more than 800 military bases around the world sitting in other people's countries. Goodness knows how many people sitting there. And we don't, we don't blink an eye at that because it's become such a part of of who we are as Americans. Yet if we were to have a single military base of someone else's in this country, it would be absolutely not tolerated. Absolutely. Um, people would be horrified. So there's much um, changing of ideas, you know, that, that we are about to in our work. And I also consider myself to be a citizen of the world. We are all one. We are all connected. Definitely be an interesting discussion for another day of whether or not this is a place that we, the country has ended up that wasn't originally intended or if this is a natural consequence of how we started mm -hmm. and uh, where we always, the trajectory of where it always was going to end up. Well, I'll be for another day because I'm getting a sign that we have two minutes left. If people want to plug in, maybe start their own affinity group or find out more from you all about how that's done or how they can just get more information about what's happening with this campaign, what's the best way for them to do that? Done. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are just listening, you can't see that. Uh, Doug was just handed a flyer to read. But <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an idea? Come on, elaborate. I need some help here. Um, well, I would just say, oh, gosh, who would be, who would be the, uh, certainly Bruce, again, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, would be the first person to. There's a Facebook to, page yeah, for yeah, network yes. for yeah. weapons and nuclear. Yes. Or yeah. Yeah. Yes. Let me read his, his website. Okay. Bruce Guyton can be t uh, contacted, and any of us can through him, at globalnet at mindspring.com globalnet at mindspring.com and I just want to quickly close with uh, one of the folks who could not be here today is Lisa Savage, who was arrested with you all as part of this affinity group as well. And she wrote a statement. She says, we held a news conference for the conversion campaign on Friday, June 21st at the Portland Public Library. We invited all of Maine's congressional delegation or their staffers well in advance and repeatedly none, some of the invites such as to Representative Jared Golden, were even conveyed in person to his bank or office. 
Not a single one of the four replied or sent staff to attend the conference. It's tragic because articulate speakers from teenagers through great-grandparents expressed their alarm at the U.S. military's role in crashing our planet's climate and hastening human extinction. We're in a climate emergency, yet those who are supposed to represent us in Congress would rather be wined and dined by general dynamics than face up to the crisis we're in and start turning the ship of state around. It may be too late by the time they wake up, and that's why 22 of us took matters into our own hands and blocked the buses going to the warship celebration. If Bath Ironworks converted to building sustainable energy solutions, it would create more jobs and reduce the Pentagon's carbon footprint or bootprint, she says. A bold plan in a time of great peril for humans and other creatures. That's Lisa Savage. I'm getting the signal that we're out of time. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you, appreciate thank you, thank you, really. appreciate so much, that you were here. And thank you to Joel Mann for engineering today's program. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. My guests today, again, were Russell Ray, Connie Jenkins, Meredith Breskin, Dud Hendrick, and Rob Shetterly. Join us here for Maine Currents on the first Thursday of every month at 10 o'clock. And stay tuned for On the Wing coming up next. <laughs>